doctors don't have a clear understanding of it. It started opening up my mind to like, how does the human body work? This is a real thing that really affects people. This is a major pain. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and today we'll be speaking with recovering drug addict and alcoholic Kenny Alhadif. So if that last name sounds familiar to you, this is my girlfriend Andy Alhadif's father. And the reason I wanted to talk to Kenny is that he's a real success story as far as overcoming addiction is concerned, because, you know, you'll hear all about his addiction to prescription pain pills, cocaine, alcohol, and how he's transformed his life, where he's managed to live in recovery for the long term, and also go on to do great things. He is an actual real-life Broadway producer. He's one of the producers of the successful Broadway show, Come From Away, and you'll hear about that as well. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share someone's story that is a success story. You know, oftentimes we'll talk to people that don't have answers, that don't know what to do next, that don't know where to turn, but here's someone who's who's made it, you know, <laughs> here's someone who's been able to integrate their major, major pain into their life in a way that allows them to live a healthy, happy, productive, successful life. And I'm, I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to share it with you. I have to give a special thank you to a few people who actually donated in support of the podcast this week. So thank you so much to Isaac, to Tyler, and Les and Linda. Thank you so much for the donations. It is so helpful right now, while I'm unable to work because of my major pain, to receive those donations. So thank you so, so much. If you would like to donate to support this podcast, you can find all the ways to donate at majorpainpodcast.com slash support. I'm also excited to tell you that I started an Instagram account for this podcast. So if you'd like to see images of all of the guests I'm having on the show, as well as podcast descriptions and a place where you can interact and hopefully build some community around this show, you can check us out on Instagram at Major Pain Podcast. I'm continuing to receive really wonderful feedback about the show. I've received some emails and some Facebook messages and um, website comments. I've seen them all. Thank you so much. Um, it just makes the whole cycle feel so much more rewarding to be hearing from people. And I, so thank you so much to everyone that I've heard from. All right, well, let's get into our conversation with Kenny Alhadith about drug and alcohol addiction. All right, I'm here with Kenny Alhadif. Kenny, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure to be here with you. So for our listeners out there, tell us a little bit about who you are. Well, my name is Kenny Alhadif. I'm part of a seven-generation Seattle family. Uh, in my, I went to public school in Seattle and have lived here my whole life. Um, my first jobs and everything were in our family business at that time. We actually owned a racetrack called Long Acres Racetrack, which my grandfather started in 1933, and we sold it in 1990. Uh, I am the chairman of Elteus Enterprises. Elteus is Seattle backwards. <laughs> that name has been in our family almost 100 years. Wow. And uh, we've been in the real estate business uh, own a movie theater, been in the restaurant business, and most uh, of our time now is spent in our major love and business, and that is producing theater. We've been blessed to produce three shows on Broadway, Memphis, which won the Tony for Best Musical, and other Tonys, 
And for those of your listeners who don't know what a Tony is, that's the theater version of an Academy Award. Mm -hmm. And then a fun show called First Date. And right now we have a show that currently, of course, is not on stage because of COVID. But for three years, we have been showing Come From Away on Broadway. There's also a company in London and in Toronto, Canada, and in Australia and a North American tour. And we're certainly hopeful and looking forward to the day that we can share our story all around the world again, which is a story of decency and humanity and kindness on a very difficult time when the people of Gander, Newfoundland, uh, opened their arms and their hearts to 38 planes that landed on 9-11 when the American airspace closed. I'm also the producing partner of the Fifth Avenue Theater here in Seattle. Um, I've always enjoyed theater and the arts. I feel that they're important to the soul and to who humans are. I think we're here to entertain, but also to enlighten and lift up the spirit. Uh, I'm chairman of the Alhada Family Charitable Foundation, which is just being turned into uh, a fund, a donor advice fund. And uh, through the years, we've had the privilege and the pleasure to work on Alzheimer's research, cancer, drug and alcohol recovery, almost every major civil rights issue of trying to bring America anywhere close to what we all believed and thought she could and should be. Um, And we've been privileged to um, have a program called Future Teachers of Color, where we've done scholarships for many, many students of color to become teachers and many other uh, charitable activities and with the arts. Uh, And we're just privileged and blessed that we could have done that. I am the uh, proud husband of Marlene Manioni Alhadif, and I have three amazing children. Aaron Alhadif, Allison Alhadif, and someone that you might know, I'm not sure, Jesse, <laughs> uh, my youngest daughter, Andy Alhadif, who is a sparkle of sunshine with a voice that can blow through a steel wall and, and for- a heart that could fill the entire world. And for anyone who but doesn't I'm not know, prejudiced. she's my right? girlfriend and, and my oh, roommate, really? my partner. Yes. I didn't know that. Yes. So what that's a surprise. That's, that's how such a cool we know each other. <laughs> that's so. That's kind of um, you know. I'm 72. I love to play golf. Uh, I want to be part of the rebuilding of this country. I want to bring theater back. Uh, I want to be around as long as I can to love my family and help my country yeah. and the world. So that's kind of me. Well said. So that's a. I mean, a very impressive resume. You're a Broadway producer. You've done so many incredible things. But you also have a major pain that you've lived with for a huge portion of your life. So, Kenny, what is your major pain? Well, my major pain, and I have to put it not completely in a past tense because it's part of my life every day. Yeah. But is uh, I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. Yeah. And drugs and alcohol uh, came into my life in a serious way uh, in the early 70s. And I became uh, addicted to prescription drugs, cocaine, 
and alcohol was just a substitute when I couldn't get those. Uh, I, at that time, I was married to my first wife, and I was a mess in many ways. And uh, I had migraine headaches, and I was uh, given Percodan to help with the headaches. They, wow. Well, they help with the headaches, <laughs> but they also took the pressure of the marriage and the business and my brother away, and I felt pretty good. Yeah. So two every four hours is needed for pain turned into four every two hours is needed by Kenny. Wow. And I started to consume a great numbers of those pills. And as happens with any narcotic, after a while, your body builds up a tolerance. So I had to change to other prescriptions. And at that time, I didn't think I was a drug addict at all because I'm just taking pills given to me by doctors. Sure. They're not drugs. I'm not putting needles in there. Well, then I was introduced to cocaine, which was kind of a party drug for everybody in the early 70s. And that was the beginning of the end. Uh, I went to very dark places and it helped destroy me. Um, when I was in my addiction, I didn't care about my family. I didn't care about my country. I didn't care about anything except getting high. And the insanity of it is, after a while, you don't even get it. Hmm. So you keep chasing. Yeah. And I can't speak for anybody but me, but I know I was trying to fill a hole in my life with drugs and alcohol. And it's a hole that you can't fill with drugs and alcohol. You can't fill it with a Bentley or a Rolex watch. You can only fill it with spirit, spirituality. Hmm. Your relationship with a power greater than yourself. But I didn't know any of that then. And I certainly didn't think I had a problem because I had a great job. I was uh, president of the Central Area Boys Club. I was raising money for the children at Children's Hospital. How could I be, how could I have a problem? I had 50 yard line tickets to the football games, but it was horrible. And I figured one day, I kind of figured out that this wasn't working out anymore. That I wasn't having any fun. And so I knew how to quit because, well, because when I was a teenager, I had zits. And I went to the doctor. The doctor said, well, Kenny, do you eat chocolate pudding? I said, yeah, I do. <laughs> he said, well, don't eat chocolate pudding and you won't get zits. So I got this. Jesse, I got this. If I don't do cocaine and I don't take pills, and I don't drink half a bottle of vodka, I won't feel all this horror and this nightmare and this dysfunctionality. So I quit, just like with the chocolate pudding, Yeah. for three days. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when the power and the majesty of drugs and alcohol shone into my soul, went around into my throat and down into my heart and said to me what chocolate pudding never said. They said, oh, come on, man, you can handle this. Let's just control it. You're smart. You can do this. Nobody can tell you you can't. What? So I went back to using, and it got worse and worse. And uh, I went through a divorce with my first wife and uh, had a beautiful son and tried to keep my life together, but I couldn't keep it together. Uh, there was no way. To, I tried to manage it. Tried to say, well, cocaine only on the weekend and only three pills a day and one drink. Anything I could do to manage it and control it, but I couldn't. 
one drink was too many, tw- 10 weren't enough. What does that what? feel like to, to want to control it and to attempt to, but not be able to? You feel helpless and powerless and defeated and like a loser and like you're weak. Hmm. And like there's something really wrong with you that you can't do this. Had you That's talked, how it felt. Had you talked to your doctors about that at that point? No, no. At that time, I hadn't done talked to anybody about any of it. Hmm. And then uh, it came all crashing down and uh, I had to go to outpatient treatment. Oh, wow. Uh, after I had been in an accident and while, while I was drunk and, uh, and that was the first treatment program I had been in. And from the second I got there, I was trying to figure out why I didn't need to be there and that I was smarter than everybody else there. Mm. And these were strangers. And what are they telling me about what's wrong with me? And, you know, they started talking about this AA program and going to meetings and all this. And it was a bunch of nonsense to me. And, you know, and we'd go to a meeting and these people would talk about drinking and all this. And, and then the next night we'd have our lecture and then we'd have to go to another meeting. And, you know, they did these steps, these 12 steps. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life has become unmanageable. Came to believe a power greater than me restored me to sanity and on and on. And when we went to the second meeting, they did the same steps. <laughs> like I thought maybe they borrowed them or something. And then the next night and the next night, every meeting, pretty much the same. And I said, this is ridiculous. It's like being in the Groundhog Day movie. <laughs> you know, uh, I hear, you know, what are they saying? If you don't drink, you won't get drunk. If you don't use, you won't get high. One day at a time, keep it simple. And I said, you know, that, who needs that? I mean, you'd only go to a meeting if you were bored or you needed to get out of the rain or something. I mean, I don't need a club. or So I, I didn't go to the meetings and I went back to using and, it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. During that time, I, I met my beautiful, amazing second wife, and I was controlling it reasonably well for a while. And, uh, and then after we were married, she realized that I was on a death spiral. Mm. Uh, and she did an intervention, and I went to treatment. And this time... I was beat up so bad that I just started to listen. And I heard a lot of things that made a lot of sense to me. When they first said that uh, alcoholism and drug addiction were a disease, my first attitude, well, of course you call it a disease. That's how you get my insurance money. Hmm. And then I realized what it really meant. And what it meant was when I was born, I was a cucumber. (laughs) And something happened. And it was maybe genetic or that my dad didn't come to my football game or Wendy Joe Allen wouldn't go out with me because I was Jewish. Whatever the heck the reason is, at some point, I became a pickle. (laughs) And now I'm a pickle. And the deal is, if you are a pickle and you know it, Like you could win a $200 million tax-free lottery, but you'd still be a pickle (laughs) because there is no way to turn a pickle back into a cucumber. Yeah. And that's what the whole disease concept is about is that that you can't, that that like trying to use willpower, you know, willpower works on, on 
drug addiction and alcoholism about the same way that willpower works on diarrhea. <laughs> right. It's, it's not a willpower issue. Right. Uh, and uh, then they started talking, but then they started talking about like a God thing or a religion thing. And so, of course, that, you know, I immediately went to the place, even though I'm Jewish and proud of my heritage, I immediately went to the place of the buildings and the books and the fake uh, holy rollers who take money from old people that are dying. And I went up right to the religion place and what's wrong with religion. And then I kept listening and then I understood what they meant about a higher power. And so I learned two things that I know are for positive about a higher power. There is one. And the second thing I learned is I'm not it. Mm. And the I'm not it is huge. Yeah. Because I lived in a world where I thought I was it. I thought money, power, prestige, and intelligence could solve anything at any time in any way, not drug addiction and alcoholism. Because they don't care how rich you are, how smart you are, whether you have a PhD or you didn't get out of fourth grade. And there is no, what I learned for me is there is no willpower, there is no moderating, there is no middle ground. And you know, uh, I lecture at treatment centers and uh, I've been doing it for, I've been clean and sober 36 years. Wow. And for 34 of those years, I've been going to drug and alcohol treatment centers. And lecturing and I lecture my story and I talk about the 12-step recovery programs and, and then I say to you know I pick up my coffee cup and I tell the people in, in the lecture hall pretend this is full of gasoline would you like to drink some and they all shake their head is there anybody want to have a little of this and they shake it I said well what if you're having a real bad day or your your girlfriend leaves you you want a little gasoline what if the Seahawks lose four games in a row? You're going to drink this? No. None of these people want to drink gasoline out of my coffee cup <laughs> because they've known since the time they were able to think that gasoline was poison and it could kill them. Yeah. So they already have, we all have every tool we need to never drink or drug. I mean, just pretend it's gasoline and you're done. Lock it up. No treatment center, no 12 steps, no counselors, no nothing. Just pretend it's gasoline. Because you're not, you're not afraid that in like eight years you'll start drinking gasoline. <laughs> and the other example I would use is since you were a little boy, Jesse, you've uh, been getting dressed on your own. And it takes a lot of things. you got to think about what pants you're going to wear, what shirt, the whole thing. You have to do this active thing to get dressed. Uh, well, you don't get up any morning and go, God, I, oh, I hope I get dressed before I go to Costco. <laughs> I mean, you, you just do it and it, you'll do it every day until you can't. Yeah. You'll dress yourself every day until you'd started doing it as soon as you could and you'll do it till you can't. So that is an active event. And there's no chance that you are going to forget to do it one day or decide it's too hard to get dressed. Well, not drinking and drug, drugging in the purest sense is an inactive event. You just don't do it. So it's easier to be clean and sober than it is to get dressed, right? 
Wrong. <laughs> of course. Why is that? The wrong is, is one word, life. Life is complicated and difficult, fair and unfair, easy and hard as our relationships and everything. And, and I can only, I'm speaking here for me. For me as a drug addict and alcoholic, I got to a place where my way of dealing with everything in life that wasn't good was drugs and alcohol. And they didn't fix it and I couldn't stop it. So, you know, the alcohol and drugs were creating more problems than they were helping. And so I had to stop. Um, and that would be easy to do because I know how to do that because if cocaine and pills and vodka are ruining my life and I can't be have any dignity and I can't behave in the way I want, just stop doing them. And I did for three days. Yeah. <laughs> That's when the power and the majesty and the strength of drugs and alcohol shone up through my eyes down into my soul and said to me what chocolate pudding never said. They said, Kenny, 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 come on. We're not the problem. We're your drugs and alcohol. Yeah, we got a little out of hand, but, you know, you can control this. And you don't need anybody telling you what to do. And you don't need to go to a club and do a bunch of steps. Just let's manage this. Control it. And besides, I like, you know what? I accept you however you are. You want to lie? Lie. You deserve to lie. You want to cheat? Cheat. You deserve to cheat. You want to be vindictive? Do, because people screwed you over. I'm your drugs and alcohol, and I will never leave you. I'm with you. Nah, chocolate pudding didn't say that. <laughs> so I went back to it, and it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. And anyway, after the accident on January 7th of 1980, that ended up me in outpatient treatment. I heard everything they had to say and I bought some of it, but I certainly didn't buy all of it because, you know, I'm smart. And uh, I can figure this out. It's just willpower. Back then, I didn't understand it. It's not a willpower thing. It's a surrender thing. So I went to outpatient treatment, uh, but I didn't follow through. I didn't go to the meetings. I didn't do the steps. Before you knew it, I was back at it. And I got married for the second time and worked hard to control it. And that's a real job, you know. It's a full-time job if you're an addict or alcoholic to control it. It takes more energy than to not do it. And I did that for a while, but not very well. And a few times I took enough pills that it became a difficult situation where the 911 had to come. But I wasn't trying to kill myself. I just want to get high. You know, just want to get high. At any rate, it all ended up with me going to inpatient treatment on the 19th of July of 1984. And even then, I didn't really think I needed to be there. I went to make everybody leave me alone. And my first days in treatment were simply me proving to myself that I was smarter than everybody there, that nobody there could really care about me, that my counselor was only doing it because she was being paid, and that they were trying to convince me of a lot of things, like that I had a disease. 
What a cop-out. That's how they got the insurance money. If they didn't call it disease, how do they get the insurance money? Like there's a higher power that could help me. What a cop-out. But what I didn't understand is the two things you need to know about a higher power. There is one. And I'm not it. And the disease one, I think I might have mentioned already on this podcast. If I did, I'm 72 and I'm going to mention it again. Well, it's actually uh, something I wanted to ask you more about. So let's, I'd love to dive into that a little bit. Okay. So, you know, the, the metaphor I used is you're born a cucumber and you become a pickle. Yeah. And if you become a pickle, you can never be a cucumber again. And the disease nature of drug addiction and alcoholism, if you get to that point, is there's, you can never control it. You could never manage it. And waiting 10 years to use again, does it, it even accelerates in the meantime. I, I have case and case and case again of friends in recovery, five years, 10 years, 17 years, 27 years, who had one glass of wine at their daughter's wedding, and four months later, were dead. Wow. With 27 years of sobriety. The disease doesn't stand in place. It moves along. And there's a lot of uh, medical data and provable facts about the disease concept. But you know, one level doesn't matter at all. It's just either drugs and alcohol cause a problem in your life and you'd rather they didn't or you don't believe that. If you don't believe that, you're not going to get clean and sober. If you do believe it and you really want to, you can. So fast forward to 2020. That's 38 years of sobriety. That's over 13,000 days. And in one sense, I have tremendous security, knowledge, awareness, and ability to stay sober to my last breath. And in another sense, I am no more sober than the woman in her first day of treatment. Hmm. As corny as it all sounds, Jesse, it is one day at a time. And I know that tomorrow, with all the gifts I have in my life, with my beautiful family, with my wonderful grandchildren, with the quality of my life and my gratitude for it, if I started to dabble a little with a few pain pills when there wasn't pain, I would end up dead or if not dead, worse, alive as a shell of a human being. And so in a way, it's really easy to stay sober and clean and sober because I understand the alternative. And so many millions of people try to outthink this thing or debate it. Well, I'm, 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 not, a, I'm not an alcoholic. I just drink too much. I'm, oh, well, you say you're a recovering alcoholic after all those years. Well, I say I'm recovered. Hmm. Well, if you're recovered, then you could drink again, right? Hmm. So you can get all caught up in all the semantics of it and uh, whether prescription drugs is an addiction because they're given to you by doctors. It, does, it all boils down to if drugs and alcohol cause more negative in your life than positive, why would you do it? If you take a hammer and you smash it on your head and it hurts, you probably don't take a hammer and smash it on your head again. Well, if you take a hammer and smash it on your head and it feels incredible, it gets hard to know that you need to stop. 
but it stops feeling incredible always. Right. Always. Absolutely. It never keeps the high. But what happens is you keep remembering the high and wanting it, and then you spend all your time just, just trying to get even. Yeah. Just trying to get to back to where you are. And many people who start to get sober don't want people to know about it, and they're embarrassed, or they think it's a weakness. That's like saying that having cancer is a weakness. Yeah. And, and then the people who judge all that say, well, oh, you're just using the disease as a, as a baloney reason to justify your behavior. So all that crap you did isn't your fault? No, it's my fault. Everything I did under the use of drugs and alcohol is my fault that I did it. I'm accountable for it. I need to make my amends for it, and I need to never do it again. And it still is a disease. It's a disease that I can never cure, but that I can 100% arrest if I choose to. And the 12-step program gives me the tools to do it. Does that work for everybody? No, but it sure has worked for tens of millions of people for way over half a century. And it's free. Yeah. And nobody wants anything from you. And you don't have to give them any money. And nobody's the boss. So how bad could that be? So when you went into inpatient treatment, would you say that it was the 12-step program that was the breakthrough as far as getting control over this disease? It gave me the outline of the tools mm -hmm. and the understanding that, that, you, that I, I'm not in control of this disease. I'm powerless over this disease. What I can do is, is surrender to win. Again, I get back to this people thinking that, well, the answer is to just control this. Because if that's the case, then you should really be able to have one glass of a great red wine once a week, shouldn't you? I mean, seriously, one glass of red wine a week. How could that possibly be a problem? It couldn't be unless it's a disease. Right. Because disease means that the one becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, becomes a needle in your arm. And that happens every, literally every time if you are an alcoholic and a drug addict. Now, there are people who go to treatment because they've had some problems and maybe genuinely aren't alcoholics and drug addicts. And maybe there's a place where they can control this stuff. If they can control it, then they're not. Because those of us who are can't. Right. And the way we control it is by not doing it. It's an absolute deal. Mm -hmm. That's the success of AA. That's why every other program, uh, moderation programs, uh, inhibitor programs, have, do, don't have the, the level of uh, success, as I am aware of, that this program has. But that's, you know, I'm not on your, show, on your podcast today to, as promoting AA. Uh, I'm telling you my story and what worked for me. Absolutely. What works for me is, uh, and because I know that the person talking to you right now, I know him not to be a good man with a good heart, with a desire to be compassionate and kind. And I know that the demon of my disease will obliterate that in a day. Wow. You won't matter. Yeah. My family won't matter. My country won't matter. What'll matter is getting more drugs and alcohol. 
Yeah. So I want to I want to ask you about my understanding of alcoholism as a disease to see if this lines up with your experience. Um so my understanding is that scientifically we don't know why some people are predisposed to alcoholism and drug addiction and that's part of why it is a disease is because there's something about the body that or the chemical makeup of the body or something that we just don't know yet as far as science is concerned where some people can't control how they react to these substances and some people can like some people can have a, a drink of wine you know once a week or even once a day and not be an addict and and not have their lives spin out of control and not get to a place where they are um, making decisions that are damaging to themselves and to others around them because of that one glass of wine. But some people do. And that's, that's where this line is, is that it is a disease. It's like saying if you are allergic to dust and um, if you're allergic to this thing, you, ha you can't be around it. So you have to keep your house clean. It's like saying if I'm allergic to dust and I you know, decide not to, not to dust anymore and my house is full of dust, you're going to get sick. Uh, and no one blames you for that. No one thinks that that's your fault. They just say, you're allergic to dust, so you got to be away from this. Um, and with alcoholism, I feel like there is a, there, there's like a weird line that some people acknowledge and some people don't. And I'm a very firm believer that, um, that something being a disease, meaning that it is hard for you to control, means that it's different for someone who it isn't a disease for. It's not the same for every person. Would you, is, does that sound correct to you? Totally. For someone who doesn't have the disease, it's, it's illogical to them. Yeah. We, they would just say, well, just don't, just don't do it. Why do you need the program and the steps and all these other people and a coin in your pocket and celebrating your anniversary and all this shit? Just don't drink. Yeah. Because for them, if they chose, they just didn't want to ever drink again, they, they could do it and, and it would just happen. And what, you know, there, there is actually scientific evidence uh, genetically mm -hmm. uh, of chromosomes, consistency. And that's why there's a significant proportion of people with alcoholism have a genetic predisposition based on their family. Yeah. It, it's not, it, it's too, it's one of those deals that to call that a coincidence is just not realistic. Totally. It so often follows a pattern of the family. Now, someone who wants to totally negate the disease say, well, it's just because the, they learned it from their parents. Mm -hmm. They drank, so they drank. Well. Uh, but you can't learn allergies. And if, no, if we could think about it differently, that, it would help so many people. Yeah, I think a lot of people try to say it. A lot of people who are really uncomfortable calling themselves an alcoholic because of the stereotype. Yeah. The guy bouncing off the wall on Second Avenue um, is they say I have a I have an allergy, and a lot of times that works really well when you're trying to explain it to people who don't understand it, hmm. and it's a real good way to explain it to children. You know, mommy, yeah. mommy has an allergy, just like you know, Susie. When you get a bee sting, you get really sick. Mommy has an allergy to alcohol, so she's not going to drink anymore. That works, and there's no reason not to use it. Yeah. But what, what it all gets down to is still in this day and age, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous started in the 30s. Still in this day, almost the, pushing towards 100 years later, 
with tens of millions of cases of success. And again, a program that has no secret agenda. There's nobody at the top who's getting rich off it, ever. There, you can't even give out AA more than $5,000 in your life. <laughs> if you wanted to give it to them, they wouldn't even take it. But, and I'm not, AA's not perfect. There's, because human beings aren't perfect. Are there people in AA who try to take advantage of others? Yeah. But is the structure of it an amazing structure of civility and human common compassion to collectively deal with something? And it's really simple how it worked. How it worked is that I got to hear about this from someone who understood me because they did the same thing. But they stopped doing it 12 years ago. And I was still doing it. And they hadn't done it in 12 years. And they told me what it was like what happened and what it's like today. And in those stories, I would hear that they would go to meetings and they would read the book and they would get a sponsor and they would do the steps. And I'd hear it over and over from someone with seven years, 12 years, 20 years, 40 years. And I'm sitting there in a treatment center and it kind of started making a little sense, you know? And all, and all of those people were actively involved in a program. Now, you know, I don't know. We're just talking in general. You asked about it, something that, you know, caused a, I don't remember the exact words at the start, because for those who don't know, we had a technical difficulty. And this is two part podcast. Yeah. For us, it's two parts for the listener. It'll all be together and they won't even know I, where it happened. <laughs> okay. But I think it's intriguing for them to know you have to deal with that kind of thing. Sometimes. Oh, sure. All the time. Uh so, you know, there's a few things that I said that I'm not sure which sequence I told them to you in, but the question, the day that starts the podcast, could you reframe that for me, please? Uh, yeah, I just asked you, what is your major pain? Yeah. And the so the pain, the, you know, the pain is the pain it caused me, but more importantly, the pain it caused others. Yeah. yeah. The pain I inflicted on others, which is like 180 degrees from who I hope and believe I am. There's no way I would do those things, but actually I did do those things. And that's where I want to make it clear because a lot of people dispute the value of the program is they say, all you people just use it as an excuse. It's not an excuse. Saying it's a disease is not an excuse for your behavior. It's just an understanding. You still have to be accountable for it. You still did the behavior. You still did the things I can only speak for me. The things I did that I wish I hadn't done. Can you give so us any, any examples that? of that? I don't want to ask well, you to reveal anything you know, that's uncomfortable. But you know, Well, you know, the easy ones are driving drunk and, and potentially killing myself and others, turning a car into an assault weapon, Yeah, driving 100 miles an hour over a, a, a center line a, on a highway in a rainstorm. Um, talking inappropriately to people, behaving inappropriately, not showing sensitivity or kindness, being arrogant and selfish, uh, not showing up to work, lying, and a lot of other things. Can, I ask, can I ask how this has affected your family? Because I, I, I ask this knowing your family and you have an incredible family. You know, you're... 
Um, you're, when I first met your family, when I first started dating Andy, I was amazed how how everyone in your family is so appreciative of each other. It's something that's very rare. I think a lot of families don't tell each other how much they love each other all the time and don't go out of their way to make sure everyone in the family feels appreciated. And I've heard some stories about, um, you know, from you and about your experience in the past. And it's, I'm trying to imagine this person because from my, <laughs> from my perspective, the person that you were under the influence of drugs and alcohol is nowhere even close to, to the man that I know. And I have known a couple of people who had drugs and alcohol problems. And when they were under the influence, a completely different person would come out. And yes, it's still them. It's still the same person, but you could just see a change in their eyes. It was almost as if, um, you know, I don't, I don't believe in demons, but it was as if a demon had taken over yeah. their body. Well, you know, um, for my son who, uh, when I got sober, my, my son was, uh, nine years old. Uh, so he had experienced some experiences relative to it. So he has a historical perspective of it that my daughters don't. I've mm -hmm. been sober their whole life. Yeah. From the day they were born. But they're very aware because I've shared with them. And for my wife, she appreciates my sobriety. Uh, and she recognizes that, that I have to deal with that every day. And um, I get a lot of support and nurturing from my family uh, for, and celebrating my annual birthday of sobriety and this total support to go to as many meetings whenever I need to, if I want to. Uh, um, and I, I'm kind of an emotional, corny person, <laughs> but there's no other way to say this except this. It is the thing I'm the most proud of in my life. And it is the most important thing in my life. And when I say that, I mean it in one vein. It's more important than my children and my wife. And the reason is, without it, I wouldn't have them. Interesting. Dead. You're saying that without your addiction, I, I, you wouldn't have your family now? With, no, I'd be dead. I would have died within a year. But the point is, there, and if I started using tomorrow, I would lose my family. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I don't stay clean and sober, there is no nothing. If I don't stay clean and sober, I don't even care who the president is anymore. Which is I'm saying a lot these days. What I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. I'm not going to get political here, but to say I've dedicated a lot of my life to social justice, human decency, equal opportunity. I wouldn't give a shit about any of that. Yeah. Does that, scare you? Does that scare you to live with that knowledge that there is something that is plentiful, that your family, I mean, you know, when we go out to dinner, your wife will have a glass of wine. So there is alcohol present around you. Does it scare you to know that there is this thing that is no, omnipresent that could end your life? No, no, not at all. Because the last time I checked, the alcohol can't levitate itself tie me down and pour itself down my mouth. Yeah. The, the pills can't open themselves out of a bottle, write a prescription, and stick them in my mouth. Only I can do that. So, nope. As long as I don't do that, they're not a threat at all. And it's that black and white. But some people, many people, I'm blessed to not be one at this point in my life, 
for today uh, who struggle with that. Yeah. You know, but none of that stuff can touch me if I don't touch it. It doesn't have its own ability to be the instigator. Mm-hmm. I have to instigate. Yeah. Now, and the way you'd instigate is by the elimination of the support system that keeps you in a place where those things don't happen. And everyone's support system can be a little different. Some people go to 10 meetings a week. Some people go to 10 meetings a year. Some people read the big book 20 times. Some people have read it once. Some have 12 people they sponsor. Some people have none. Sponsorship is when you take on new people in the program and help guide them. Um, but no, I don't have that fear. I have that re- I have that understanding yeah. that it's all on the line every day. And the thing about that is, quite frankly, that's kind of, you know, most people and particularly many addicts, I can only speak for me, always love the rush, right? You love the, the excitement and the rush. Well, guess what? Life's a real excitement and a rush when you know each day, each day you have a choice to make that could be, be the beginning of the end of your life. Mm-hmm. And so the beauty of that is in an imperfect world, I get to choose every day to do something perfectly. Hmm. And I'm not trying to be arrogant about me. Every man, woman, and child in this country who has chosen to stay clean and sober today, they've done it as well as anybody in the world can do it. I just, there's no drugs and alcohol in my system. That's, that's all I can do today. And that's what I intend to do tomorrow. What do you do if you have a surgery or you go to the doctor and they prescribe you pain pills for a specific reason? Right. How do you manage that? The first thing you do is you you alert every doctor and everybody in your circle that you, I'm speaking for me, what what was taught me to do, what I would suggest someone do. Uh, You explain to the doctors that you're in recovery and... Uh, when the medication is warranted, you usually you give it to your significant other, your spouse, or someone else to administer it to you. Because the danger is, you know, it's a real surgery, it's real pain, you don't need to suffer. But as soon as you take the first pills, all bets are off. Because everything starts changing. So left to your own devices... Two every four hours is needed for pain might turn into four every two hours is needed by you. So I don't control the, I don't control the medication if I have it. And the first thing you do is you really do a gut check about how much does this hurt. Am I am I kind of kidding myself here? Because I'd really like to just have a couple percodan, and that probably plays more to those of us who have prescription addictions mm-hmm. because that's a gray one. It's not you know alcohol is black and white. You drink or you don't drink. I guess heroin's black and white. Cocaine's black and white. But prescription drugs aren't quite black and white. Yeah, you're not going to meet a doctor who's going to tell you to do heroin. No, but but there may be a doctor who tells you, you know, you haven't, you're so, or there may be, a, there may be um, medications that you'd be given for emotional problems that are totally valid. Yeah. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't be, uh, if you're bipolar, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be on medication. If you have serious anxiety, it doesn't mean you shouldn't take medication. It just needs to be very up and present that in your case, I mean, there are some people in the program who say you shouldn't take anything no matter what. 
Wow. I can only speak for me and most of people I know that there are re- when the reason, the initial reason is completely justifiable and you control it through the process, it's okay. If the original reason is a manipulation, if you pretend something hurts that doesn't hurt hmm. to get the prescription, that's just like going to the dealer. Yeah. So it's a tough balance. You got to just be aware of yourself, aware of your pain. Yeah. That's hard. It, yeah. That's the tr- prescriptions are trickier. Everything else seems mainly black and white. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've had in 36 uh, years, I've had alcohol in my system twice. Once when I ordered a Coke at a party and they gave me a rum and Coke and I took a big gulp before I had a chance to realize mm. Fit it out. I, you know, I. It just was devastatingly emotional for a few minutes. Yeah. And the other time was in New York with my wife and and family, and we were at a restaurant, and for some reason, they were having wine, and they poured it for me, but the glass they poured it in wasn't a wine glass, and I and I thought it was water, and mm. I took a big gulp, and and at that time I took a very big gulp. And it just immediately, I had a reaction and I had to leave the restaurant. Now, I, I didn't, it wasn't like, oh my God, I'm not sober anymore. It's just I had this dramatic reaction. To and those were 100%, 100%, that, that kind of thing can happen. It's yeah. what you do. Yeah, but, I mean, you can't, be, you can't be accountable for accidents, you know, no. but, but the way you respond to them is your choice. Well, yeah, like there, there are people who, again, I'm really only have qualified to talk about myself, but I know people that by accident were given a rum and coke instead of a coke. Yeah. Took the first sip and their brain said, well, I've already had this. I've already sure. had the sip. I might as well finish it. I would submit to you that people who think that way aren't actively working their recovery program very much. Those are the, those are the reasons that a strong reco- recovery program are important. And that's yeah, why, I mean, you know, it, I can see, I mean, there, you can understand why someone who's not in the program at all, who used to have a problem with heroin and has, hasn't done heroin or any other drug for 20 years, who just retired and is moving to, uh, you know, Hawaii, is sitting on the beach and their spouse is ordering a Mai Tai. Well, shit. Do you think they're thinking they're going to do heroin? <laughs> of course not. So they have a Mai Tai. Yeah. And then nothing bad happens. And then two days later, they have two Mai Tais. Nothing bad happens. And on the third day, they have the three ma- Mai Tais and they find their wife's pain medication. Mm-hmm. And on the ninth day, they're down deep into the dark part of Honolulu looking for a dealer. And it happens over and yeah. over and over again. Yeah, it's so and much harder to make it make the right decision when you're under the influence. You and can't this other it. part of you comes out, this other person comes out that yeah. doesn't know how to distinguish between the right and the wrong thing to do. And you end up going down yeah, this uh, like almost instinctual it, pathway. Well, and, and it's also neurological and sure. psychological, but it's physical too, the mm. addiction part is physical. It's like, 
you know, I mean, we're all addicted to water. Can you imagine not having water? We have to have water. And the desire you have to have water, the, the absolute complete compulsion when you are hugely thirsty, if you hadn't drank in any water, for no liquids for two days, your need to drink water would, would, would trump anything else in the world. Yeah. Well, that's the feeling that mm. you get about wanting that narcotic or that drink again. That's a good way of putting it. In that cycle. Yeah. You just have to have that. Yeah. And because like heroin is, it changes your body's chemistry. So when you become addicted to heroin, when you go off of heroin, you get really sick because your body's so used to having it. I mean, these substances change your body and right. your and body craves them. And there is That's a mind body right. connection that we don't fully understand as humans that a lot of people take for granted. And when your body's in control of making the decisions, you know, all bets are off. Right. And that's why the programs of synthetic heroin and other substitutes that are used for heroin addicts that create some of the attributes of heroin to the person in their body. But what's eliminated is they don't have to go steal or beat anybody up because mm -hmm. it's being distributed and to me are to me are absolutely not the answer maybe for a little while when, as you're moving through it but if you're taking uh Roboxin or the other drugs two years after you're off heroin you're just addicted to another drug that's more difficult to get off than heroin yeah. so you know there's a lot of politics in some of it of course there's money in recovery and what kind of recovery you know 10 days with two quick two-day follow-ups, uh, aversion therapy. And I, who am I to say that it, sure, it works for some people. Uh, you know, I, I can just share what's worked for me. And what's worked for me is understanding that I have a disease, that I can completely arrest the disease, that it will never leave, and that if I practice the principles of a program that was given to me freely, I will be able to make amends for the nightmares of my past, and I will have a, a daily reminder of goalposts of behavior, of making amends, of being accountable, of reaching to a power greater than myself, of sharing the message, of helping others. You know, the, the issue of making amends for your behavior doesn't stop in the program by making the amends for what you did when you were using. You still need to make amends for the things you do when you're not using it. It's not like you get a hall pass to be inappropriate once you're sober. If you're rude and arrogant and you lie and you're abusive of people and you become aware of it, and, yet, and this program gives you the tools to go to them and tell them you're sorry and really mean it, that can happen when you're 15 years sober. Yeah. So, you know, it's a call to be your best self. That's what yeah. the, the, tw the recovery programs are. Yeah, you know, I, this is all so interesting to me because I have never had an issue with addiction, but I've had so many other health issues and th things that are outside of my control that feel like my fault, you know, um, like if I'm not feeling well and I have plans to go do something with Andy and I can't show up, I feel guilty, but I can't show up because my body's not working right and I have a hard time controlling 
my legs and getting my body to get up and go, but I still feel like it's my fault, you know? And I still feel like it's something that I've done wrong. And I'm just trying to imagine the point of view of, of someone with addiction issues who is relapsing and in some way putting this thing into their body that is causing them to lose control and how yeah. hard that must be and how, how much you must feel like it's your fault. And, and in a way, of course, it is your fault. But on the other hand, you have a disease. Mm. And, and it's harder well, and it's harder for you yeah. than it would be for someone else. And to find some compassion yeah. for yourself. Yeah, except but once and, you become aware, mm -hmm. I, I don't think you get that hall pass. Hmm. You know, uh, I don't think you get the hall pass. I'm just speaking my opinion. Yeah. Once you understand that you, you're an addict or an alcoholic, uh, absolutely, 100%, if you, if, if you go back to using, you will have shame. You will have embarrassment. What they always say in the program is, you may not stop drinking, but AA will absolutely ruin your fun. Because <laughs> you know. You know. Yeah. You know. Well, I'm not trying to imply you, that people should get a hall pass. I think what I'm trying to say is that no matter what happens, you do your best. And if you fail, you can still try again. There is always yeah. hope. Yes. There is always another, another try. Yeah, that's right. And you should never give up on an alcoholic or an addict. Yeah. And sometimes it takes 20 times. But for the eighth time, I'm saying my truth. Yeah. There is no excuse. There is no trying to be sober because there's no obstacle but yourself. There's nobody else who's making you drink or drugs. Yeah. There is no obstacle. It's so different. Your situation is, uh, I empathize and can understand your feeling with your medical issues that when you can't do things and people are hoping to see you, you feel, you know, and that's a, that's, a, that's a tragedy that that should happen to you because you have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with why that's happening. And you have no ability to change it. That is not the case with a drug addict or alcoholic. Hmm. And that's the facts. Because there's nobody who knows you that doesn't know that you're a warrior. Well, thank you. <laughs> and you battle and you battle that the demon of unjust health issues with more courage than anyone I've ever met. Well, I appreciate and that. I wanna, and I want to say to you and anyone that's listening to this, I pray that you don't ever have to feel that way because all of us who know you are inspired by you. You don't ever disappoint us. You inspire us by your courage, by your attitude, and by your actions. Well, that means a lot. Thank you. And it's the truth. It is yeah. the truth. Yeah. So, and, I mean, I, there's, it's still, there's a difference between knowing that that's, uh, hearing that that's the truth and then still feeling like I'm messing up, you know? And I, I, and I'm, I just it. think of, like, just thinking of disease as a whole, all diseases and all people who are sick as a whole, um, just knowing that this is a constant across all levels of disease where people often feel like it is their fault. And it, I, I understand that. Yeah. And, and I'm saying in this disease, the disease of alcoholic, alcoholism and drug addiction, 
having the disease isn't your fault. Exactly. Yeah. Practicing the disease yes. is your fault. Yes. Because you would fly yeah. around the world and crawl on your hands and knees to a facility that could cure you completely, wouldn't you? You'd walk yeah. through fire. Yeah, and we Any, yeah, my right? problem is we don't know what it is, so we can't cure it. Right, right. Yeah. But my point is Right. When you know you have to take the steps. We're 100% yeah. no. Right. What the answer is. Right. It's not maybe 100% arrestable. Right. Don't do it. Right. Doesn't mean life will be perfect. Doesn't mean you won't have pain. Doesn't mean you won't be jealous a little of people who can have two drinks and get a buzz on when they don't like the results of a football game. But the point is you are 100% in control. So it's it's that in that part of it, Jesse, it's radically different. Sure. I hear what you're saying, but yeah. Uh, for people who relapse and relapse and relapse and relapse, it's not complicated. They don't believe it. They, they don't believe it. There something in them is saying, I know, but yeah. I know, but. Yeah, there's there's such an unfairness to all of this. I I remember when I was first dealing with my health stuff, it felt so unfair to me. It's like everyone else gets to go do whatever they want and I can't, and that's not fair. And for an alcoholic, it must be so difficult because everyone else can go out and drink and party and have fun and then go back to their normal jobs, but you can't, and that's not well, fair. Actually, I would submit in my case, and I think in the case of millions of people in recovery, it's more than fair. Hmm. Many of us wouldn't trade it if we could. If you could wave a wand over me and I could be a normal drinker and smoke a little doobie once in a while, I'd say no. Because the because it it's not what I can't do. It's what the beautiful, amazing, glorious gift I've been given. Hmm. And the I tools I've learned about life and about behavior and about responsibility. You know, we learn from our parents and we learn from our friends and we learn from mentors. And we learn from books. And we learn from constitutions. And we learn from programs. And this one that I'm in has taught me so much yeah. about life. And I wouldn't trade it ever, ever. Because I get to go to, if I'm having a really hard time, I get to go to a place, put a buck in a basket if I want, or two bucks, I guess, and talk to people who are the real deal. Now, are there a few people in the program who are full of BS? Yeah. There's sometimes someone in the program who's asking people to lend them money who really doesn't care about recovery and wants you to feel sorry for them. Sure, once in a while. But almost always, 13,000 days of sobriety, thousands of meetings, they're men and women who who want a good life for themselves and want a good life for you too. Mm -hmm. And you're not, you know, we walk into the meetings years into sobriety. You don't, it's always about staying clean and sober, but it's about dealing with life. All Jesse, all of us have to deal with life, with perfect health, with being an addict, with not being an addict, being an American, being from Guatemala, whatever, whatever the deal is, two legs, one leg, blind, seeing, and we all have to deal with it. And in this, this disease I have, I, there is this awesome, awesome uh, opportunity hmm. that 100 years ago didn't exist. They, they took people like me and they put them in straitjackets and put them in insane asylums. Yeah. 
because they because the person couldn't control themselves. They get drunk and then they get drunk and then they get drunk and then they get drunk. Because it never occurred to anybody to just say, well, the only way you're not going to get drunk is if you don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it, right? Just don't drink. And and then dealing with, well, why isn't that easy? Like it was, It's the chocolate pudding thing. Someone tells you tomorrow, just don't, you might like chocolate pudding, but if you really thought chocolate pudding was going to mess you up, you just wouldn't eat it anymore. Yeah. We, why we, you would think it would be that simple with alcohol and drugs? And it isn't because of life and because of some of its chemistry. Yeah. But it's so doable. There's, there's nobody, nobody. There's two things that nobody could ever stop you from being. If anybody on this planet chooses not to be affected by drugs and alcohol, they have the option whether they're a billionaire or haven't gotten out of fourth grade and they're living in a tent. They have 100% the same chance to say, I'm not going to do that anymore and let's not do it. And the other thing they both have in common, the richest, most powerful, intellectual, strongest human that ever lived. And a gentleman with one eye and one leg who never got to school is that they can both be kind. Mm -hmm. Everybody can be kind. Doesn't yeah. matter if you're rich or poor, black or white, smart or not so smart, educated, uneducated, Japanese, American, Guatemalan, Canadian. That kindness. Yeah. Kindness is an eternal gift we get to give each other if we choose to. Including to yourself. People have to be kind to themselves. Well, I would maintain, I hope we're not straying off subject, that the most important person in the entire world that you can love, Jesse, is yourself. Absolutely. You must, <laughs> you have to love yourself before you can give anybody else love. And if you yeah. really don't feel it, if you really don't feel that you love yourself, then you get the opportunity to ask yourself the honest question of why. Mm -hmm. What in my behavior, what in the way I live my life doesn't allow me to love myself completely? That's why so many of us so depend on other people to love us, to validate that we're okay. And it's wonderful to be loved by others. But when you love yourself, you are the, the chains are taken off. Yeah. Because if you are so dependent on other people's opinions or recognition of you, if that's what it takes for you to be happy, then you're just a, a slave to different degrees. And the yeah. freedom comes from self-love. Yeah, self-love is the first step to the rest of your life being happier. And self-love is a process. And yes. I, I just remember being you know, in high school and being so incredibly self-conscious and thinking that it would never go away. And then getting older and, and finding myself and learning myself and learning how to love myself more and more. And it's a process, but it makes everything better. It's the best place to start from. How, as RuPaul would say, if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Like, right. If you don't and, love yourself, how do you have positive relationships with other people that you want to love you? If you don't love you and someone else loves you, there's going to be a part of you that thinks that other person is crazy. Because right. like, why would and, they love you if you don't love you? Right. It's and the where first it's step. A, yeah. And where it really, you know, the years of the vulnerability of it are the tween years, like the 
13 to 17, 18 year old years where your whole world is validated by what others think of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it starts, you know, either you're popular in school, or you're not. You sit at this lunch table, you sit at that one. Everything is based on what if you get invited to the party, you don't. And everything is, most people at that age group, they determine their own self-worth based on it. Yeah. And very few young kids, very few 14-year-olds can really go, you know, I'm okay with myself. Some people like me, some don't. I like myself. And, you know, the more that can happen, the healthier society will be. We're so, I mean, (laughs) even with a little more awareness, we're still in a place where if you watch 25 television shows, 23 of them, every woman on it will be gorgeous and not overweight. I mean, it just, really? What is that? So what is it? So is that saying to everyone who's not gorgeous and overweight that that that's what's good and this isn't? I mean, it's self-esteem and body image and all of that is just such a big deal. And then, and then the other one is the materialism. I mean, Mm. you kind of, you live in a country where there's a subtle underkerning that that if your house is 7,000 square feet and it's on the water, you're a happier person than someone in a one bedroom apartment with no view. Well, my personal experience in life is whether you're on 7,000 square foot home on the water or in a one bedroom apartment, you have to be there. Mm-hmm. Whoever you are inside, that goes on the journey. It goes on the Greyhound bus or the Learjet. You go. And you can't not take you. Yeah. So who you are is what's going to happen there. Now, if exactly. you got everything going great and you could take the Learjet, I, that's okay. <laughs> but my, my point is that you internally are going to travel the entire length of your life with yourself. And it's the one person that you really ultimately won't be able to fool. And it's the mm. one person that's the most important. And that's a whole different thing than arrogance and ego. Totally. I totally agree. Yes. Yeah, I, lo- so, I love this. I, I totally agree with this. And I feel like I always ask myself questions like, uh, like, what is it that I actually want? And the answer is almost always to be happy. So if I want to be happy, what are the steps that I have to take? If I'm unhappy about something, what can I do to make it so that I'm happy about it? And try to boil things down and think of them in simpler terms. And if I'm unhappy because I don't love myself, that's a huge problem. How can I love myself? What can I do to make me love myself? And, you know, for my, in my life, there's been a lot of different answers to that question. One is trying to eat well and exercise, trying to get my body in a place where it feels physically as good as I can. And the other for me is creativity, just trying to make things, you know, music, podcasts, uh, videos, whatever it is that I'm working on, I always find that I learn about myself by being creative um, and pushing myself to figure out how to make what I love real. If I have an image in my mind, how can I make it real? All of those things are a process of self-love that's been very healing for me. Uh, so, what it, what is it for you? What what has helped you, I mean, gain self-love and gain knowledge about yourself? Learning to be honest with myself. 
learning to to be authentic in the things I do for what they really are, not I want what I want out of them. Hmm. I mean, it'd be like flying across the country to go to a holiday party at the White House when I really don't want to, but if I do that, I get to tell you I did that. Right. Doing doing things performatively versus doing them authentically. Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of spent a lot of my life since childhood, I, I put on a uniform, right? And then, because I wanted you to look at me, look at me. And then I, my goal in life was to add all the medals. A uniform is in like, to, like a personality? Or is no, like a, like a, a self-image? Yeah, you know, just a uniform of being special. Okay. And then I, then I had to fill the uniform with all the medals. Yeah. You know, be the chairman of this, volunteer for that, speak at this, do this, do this. And all the time putting the medals on. Doing them for good reasons, but also I want the medal. I want the medal. So you'll see me when I meet Jesse for the first time within a day or two or maybe a month, he's going to see my uniform and all my medals. So then he's going to know what I am. And be impressed. You want to impress yeah. people so that they'll like yeah. you. I did. I did. Of, I did. Yeah. I did. Yeah. When I found my truest happiness, and it hasn't been that many years, to be honest, I, I was doing pretty good. <laughs> but when I really got there is when I realized I don't need the uniform. Hmm. And man, when I took that uniform off, wow, <laughs> what a, what a treat. What a treat. It's very complicated. You know, you open your door on Halloween before COVID and there's kids in these uniforms and outfits and they're, you're giving them candy. Well, I was almost as, Concerned with making sure they thought the guy giving them the candy was a really cool guy. <laughs> so I, I didn't have enough time to really look at these beautiful children in yeah, the uniform. This is very wise. And to hear what they might have to say. And yeah. I, I, I was on performance. Mm-hmm. Hey, here I am, I've got to be candy for you. And I, I'm not to over berate myself. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm okay with the life I've lived, but I just have learned that the truest magic comes from, you know, really being able to listen to others without worrying so quickly about what you're going to say back to them. Yeah, that's huge. I spent so much time getting ready to talk back and be with something like this. It'd be so important that I said every right thing to you that I wouldn't hear what you're saying. Yeah. Today I got to hear you. I got today, the big, you know, the, the, the wonder of today and all the time I've known you, I've got to know you better today than ever. I feel and the same way about this fabulous, conversation. Yeah. <laughs> fabulous gift that I've yeah. been given today because yeah. you're important to me for a variety of reasons, which are very clear to you. And, and you know how that happened? It wasn't because you said or did things maybe you haven't done before. Although I think in this environment on a good day for you, you, you feel in, in a different kind of sense of being able to be expressive. It's as much that I actually was listening. Yeah. And that would have been, you know, because I'm on, hey, this is a show, and I'm the talker. (laughs) I get my great gift by being the listener. Yeah, that's so, so so powerful. And that's a skill that I learned um, recently from podcasting, because I started my sci-fi podcast back in 2015, and I'd have guests come on, and I would just talk over them the whole time. And I was just so excited to talk about science fiction that I, I had a really hard time hearing anything that they were saying. And then when they were talking, I was just thinking about what I was going to say next. 
And that's not a good conversation. And I, I heard myself doing that over and over. And I really made, made a concerted effort to stop doing that and to listen to people when they were talking and to let people um, keep talking until they had finished their thought. And, you know, I just make a mental note of the thing I wanted to go back and ask if, if it's even that important. Because oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes, if you let the conversation go and listen, none of those things matter. You know, the thing that you wanted to ask or the thing you wanted to say, it's going to come up naturally or it won't. But it didn't matter as much as letting the conversation happen and actually hearing and making a human connection. I mean, one of the things that brings me the most joy in life is human connection. And that's something I love so much about podcasting is that it's this opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one human connection. Um, because you and I have never had the chance to sit down and talk this long before because we're always around, you know, Andy's there or family is there or we're at a family event or gathering or, or something. Um, so there's something so beautiful about just taking the time to sit down and talk to, to someone else one-on-one. -on -one. I couldn't agree more. We have a lot more in common than beards. <laughs> um, and, and I think, it, you know, when you look back at this time in the world, uh, yeah, hopefully COVID. there's been... There's been probably a little more of that, a little more conversation among people and clearly more appreciation yeah. for things that we all take. And, you know, taking things for granted is just part of the human condition. It's actually hardwired into being able to be human, uh, that your, mm. your tolerance for risk is greater when you're younger, right? Yeah. And then you become more cautious as you get older. and Because you get banged up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and taking things for granted you know, and so often when something happens like, oh, you know, your mom gets sick and you have only been calling her like once every four months. And so you start calling her every week and then she gets well. And you say to yourself, I'm going to keep calling mom every week. And then a year later, you realize you're back to calling her every two or three months. And, and then you kind of beat yourself. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the royal you, yeah. Then you start kind of beating yourself up. Why am I not calling mom that much again? But and then that that all changes when it gets big time, like when your wife is given six to eight months to live with pancreatic cancer. Yeah, which is something you lived through, and she pulled through and is healthy now, which is a miracle. It's an absolute medical miracle. But yeah. that one's big enough that some stuff changed forever. Yeah. And all on the positive. Yeah. And, but, and wouldn't it be great if it didn't take that? Yeah. But, um, yeah. But I think, I think it's, there's a cycle all to it that's kind of beyond our comprehension about how much of that we can do and not do. And, you know, I, um, I think that's one thing that I think people are more aware of than they used to is how critical it is to tell people how you really feel about it. Absolutely. And I, I can guarantee you as you get older, I'm 72. And, you know, since my first awareness, I knew someday I was going to die. But you put it, you, you know, it's always in the future in an unrealistic way. Until you get to, to be honest, at least in my case, about my age, where I hope to live, hey, I'll live 15, 20 more years. But boy, there is a finish line and I can see it. Mm -hmm. And what do I want more than anything? no unfinished business mm. with my fellow humans. And I'm feeling pretty good about that. I'm sure I'm not quite done with that issue, but 
you know, it's telling people what you really need to say and making amends where you really need to make them and just doing your best. And, and it sounds like those are lessons you learned from AA. And if you hadn't yeah, it, had, if you hadn't had addiction issues, you wouldn't have come to these realizations. Uh, probably not. Or if I would have, they would have come much more, it would have been much more complicated. Yeah. I mean, AA is a warp speed tutorial in quality behavior. Hmm. Came to believe that the power, you know, there's 12 steps. I'm not going to repeat them all, but, you know, and it's an anonymous program. So me talking about me being in it is fine because I'm not talking about anybody else who's in it. Yeah. That's my own anonymity that I'm breaking. But me being a recovering alcoholic addict is insanely important in my story to anybody because maybe a little bit's pride. I mean, it's so interesting. Many people in recovery don't want to talk about it because they're embarrassed. I probably fault on the side of being a little too proud about it <laughs> because I know because I know that that's the that's the real deal of all real deals of my accomplishment. I'm a pretty good public speaker, but it comes pretty easy, right? But this has nothing to do with uh, how much wealth I was born into or what came easy. This is something that I do every day, 13,000 plus days. And yeah. so it is, I have a great pride in, I mean, respectful pride of it. So I do share it usually with people in the hopes that maybe, I honestly hope I'm not doing it for bragging because I don't think the world's quite in that place yet. Like where that's like the number one thing you want someone to be is in recovery. But probably because I hope maybe that it, will open a light for some people. You never know. Yeah. Yeah, you never know who's who's going to hear it and someone might need to. Which is why representation is so important. You talked about TV and you know, everyone looks the same and they're all at this beauty standard and it makes people who don't look like that feel ugly when in fact they have beauty and they need they aren't being nourished in how to see it in themselves. Um, yeah. because representation is so important. And and you know, Anyone who's struggling, hearing someone else talk about struggling, I think is really important because our society doesn't value that. If anything, it tries to, to hide those things. Um, you know, we, we have this like American ideal that weakness is dirty and that you can't show your weaknesses when in fact showing your weaknesses can be what saves someone else's life and learning how to live with your weaknesses and not be ashamed of them can make your life so much better and richer. Well, and not being afraid to to expose who you are to other people. Yeah, I mean, this is a massive generalization, but if if you take the theory that I have, that basically the way it's set up now, women are a far superior species to men. <laughs> I guess the top of the reason is is because I'm generalizing. There are many exceptions. If we're going to take every man on the planet and every woman on the planet, there'll be a disproportionate number of women. Who are willing to communicate and express their feelings openly. Mm, yeah. And that has a whole lot to do with the whole area of that women are much better at conflict resolution. And there's like a societal pressure. There's a societal pressure for men to be strong and be emotionless. Which yeah, still, I, but that yeah. and in 2020 that seems like nuts. I feel yeah. like we're getting better. I feel like the world is waking up to the fact that a lot of our, a lot of our societal norms are 
harmful. They put us in boxes that do not fit everyone. And if we could open those boxes, that humanity could thrive. If learning who you are and sharing yourself in a positive way could be accepted versus instead of learning who you are, trying to pretend to be like everyone else uh, and trying to look and sound like everyone else, you know, the former is, is so much better for, for the soul of humanity if people are able to be themselves and learn themselves. Yeah, and, you know, there probably is no greater example of the improvement in that is in the area of sexual orientation or sure. sexual choice. Preference, not preference isn't the word. That's, in, that's the inaccurate. Just coming in contact with who you are, yeah. male or female, regardless of what parts were assigned. Sure. Because it, 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 it uh, and I, you know, I, my daughter's very good, Andy and Alice, and my older daughter, at correcting me when I describe it the wrong way, like I just did. But, but what I'm saying is, we're getting where people are getting it, that it is what it is, whatever it is, and that there is, there can't be a right or wrong about that. Exactly. But just, it is what it is. And, and in your generation, and the one even one step younger than you, we're there. We're there. I mean, we're there with 10 and 12-year-olds on that issue. But people of my generation are still just trying to, you know, they spend way too much time trying to figure it out. <laughs> like, that's yeah. like trying to say, you know, I can't believe in God because I don't understand God. I can believe in God and accept that I don't understand God. So, you know, it is what it is. And every, and so some of that is improving a great deal. Yeah. Okay. So I, I do have one more question for you. And you kind of just alluded to it talking about God. You mentioned the higher power and how important that was to you in, in, in your recovery. So, I, this is a two-part question. One, what does that mean to you? What are you thinking of when you talk about a higher power? And two, what would you say to someone who doesn't believe in a higher power? How, how can they approach similar issues to what you've approached? Well, I think we start with the word higher power, not God, and not religion, and not Catholic, not Jewish, not Muslim. Higher power. Power greater than you. If you do believe you are the greatest power in the universe, if you do believe your power is greater than the power that created water and stars and mountains, if you believe that you have more power and control than the miracle of birth, uh, I don't know how to, I, I'm not sure what, where you go from that. <laughs> All it takes is the belief that there's something, it, it isn't, in my opinion, belief in a higher power is not related as it has been so traditionally in almost every organized religion in the history of the world of good versus evil, fair versus unfair, right versus wrong. If it's about that, then I, I accept the argument there couldn't be a God. Because if there was a God and the God was about the good, then there wouldn't have been an Auschwitz. There wouldn't have been, there wouldn't have been uh, all of the genocide in Africa. It wouldn't happen because that power is the greatest power of all. So who the heck does the power fight against? I mean, you, are you thinking that, that's a devil that has as much power as the good power? And now all that gets kind of caught up to me in people trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. 
it takes, it's accepting that you don't understand that it's beyond you. I mean, like, I'm, you know, I'm not excited to die and I, and I don't have the, the luxury of some of being positive. There's a heaven and I get wings maybe and float around on clouds. I kind of wish I could believe that. That's pretty comforting. But what I, and obviously we, we have the physical proof that our bodies decompose. But I have no clue what that really means. Because to say that's the end would mean, where was the beginning? I mean, just put your head around infinity. Mm -hmm. so, so take our solar system times a 17 trillion, and you haven't taken one inch on the road of infinity. And, and you know, so... Are there other Earths? There could be a million of them, or none. But there's absolutely the possibility of anything. It gets very complicated when you try to com compare faith with fair and unfair and good versus evil. Uh, but turning my will and my life over to a power greater than myself is not meaning I'm a robot. It doesn't mean that. Let me give you a good example. Um, Thanksgiving's coming up and I'm in charge of the turkey. And I put it in the oven at 350 for five hours. And I do not stand at the oven for five hours staring at it going, is it cooking? Is it cooking? <laughs> you think it's still cooking? I go do other things, right? I do the dishes or I watch TV or I take a nap, right? Why do I do that? Because I have faith, I believe. Hmm. I believe that the oven has proven to me that it's probably going to cook that turkey. So my dependence gave me independence. Hmm. Interesting. And my faith in a power greater than me does not give me permission to not be accountable, but it gives me a true belief that I don't have to have all the answers. Yeah. And it's okay. Yeah. Because if I had to do that make to make it personal, the challenges that you face so courageously would be the living proof that there's no God. I don't need anything else to tell me there's no God that a beautiful young man like you has had to go through these challenges. There is a God. And that doesn't and that does not explain why you've gone through the challenges. It, it, how it happens in recovery is I was positive I couldn't do this myself. So what AA says is, look, if you don't believe in God, make it a doorknob. Make it anything you want. Just turn yourself over to something more than you. Yeah. And it's terribly free and terribly rewarding. Yeah, and that definitely answers the question. To, Thank you. Yeah, I try not to pray for things. I pray for God's will. And God's a word. You know, it's a bad word because it sounds male and it's over. Okay, higher power. There's a worse. There's just worse. There's us trying to articulate the, something that you can't articulate. And organized religions basically are all based on something good. And they've all done stuff that's bad because humans are, you know, they're fallible creatures. Right? So, last thing about that. 
the higher power, the way I the way I put it together for myself is day of birth, boom, higher power puts in you, factory installed, decency, grace, kindness, humanity, warmth. But guess what? He gives you that heart and soul, but the power gives you that. And then what do you have to do? Every day of your life, you have to do the wiring from your heart and your soul to your brain. Hmm. And you have to rewire every day. So take a look at that. So like Gandhi was a pretty good electrician. Was he perfect? <laughs> no. Gandhi screwed up. Gandhi made mistakes. But he was really good at it. Why? Because he worked on it. And he learned how to wire good. And then he kept wiring good. And he understood what it meant. Hitler? What a shitty electrician. <laughs> Some bitch wouldn't put the thing together at all. It was there to put together. But did he ever put it together? Yeah. Did he ever really care about anything? Probably something. So it was installed. The, the decency that we want to relate to a higher power, it exists. It exists as a possibility in every human being. But the reason we're not robots is we are responsible for doing the wiring. Mm -hmm. And then you have to get up and wire it the next day. Now, if you've wired it great for 23 years in a row, it's easier to get up the next day and wire. You don't have to start all over. But you still have to do it that next day. And that's how I balance out what I believe needs to be at the center of the goodness of the universe. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, thinking about it through the lens of addiction, if you have uh, this disease, there's something in your wiring that is different than other people who don't have the disease. And every day you're choosing not to consume drugs and alcohol is a conscious rewiring of your own body to, towards mm -hmm. your best self. And, right. and every day is an opportunity to make that choice. Yeah, and we all have it, whether it's about how much food we eat or what we say to people or being greedy or being materialistic or judging people by the color of their skin or their body shape or whatever it is. We're beating somebody up because we know we can beat them up because we're bigger as opposed to, you know, when a guy's a foot and a half taller than you and 40 pounds heavier, you very often kind of run up and say, I think I want to fight this guy. <laughs> you only want to fight the guys you know you can beat. What does that mean? The fighting isn't anything. It's just victory. Mm. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you don't start a fight with someone you know you can't beat. Yeah. So why do you start a fight with anybody? So, yeah, I think that it's, it's doing the wiring every day. And that higher power is absolutely critical. And, and it's easy to rip it apart if you want to micromanage organized religion. Well, how could it all be in one book? And look at the building they build. And they take money on TV from poor people. And they started wars because, and they crucified people. You know, all true, all true, all true. That's religion. Man's attempt to comprehend the incomprehensible. And most of them had a lot of goodness in them. It gets whacked out for a lot of reasons. That doesn't, that isn't proof there isn't a, a God. There's just more proof that humans are fallible. And they got to gotta go to electrician school. <laughs> or try at least okay yeah well kenny this was really fantastic i really appreciate your time and your honesty i hope that this reaches people and and can help at least one person out there um well i know for sure that it did because it helped me 
Well, so thank yeah, you. absolutely. Me too. This was a really wonderful conversation. I appreciate All you right. being here for it. Um, Take care. So to wrap up today, one last thing. What would you tell someone who feels like they need help? Where do they go? Help with addiction? With, with addiction, yes. The surefire way is to call Alcoholics Anonymous, or if, if it's not alcohol and you want to call Narcotics Anonymous or Cocaine Anonymous, and just pick up the phone and someone will start to help you immediately. There'll be no price tag to it. They'll shepherd you towards a meeting with people that will share their story. And in their story, you'll probably hear part of yours. And instead of thinking on that day one when you want that help, can I do this the rest of my life? Just ask yourself, can I do this till tomorrow? Can I not take a drink till tomorrow? And do that and the next day and the next. You, nobody needs to do this alone. Nobody needs to do it in secrecy. There is a whole world of people who are feeling just the way you are, just as lost, just as embarrassed, just as afraid, just as frustrated, and just as scared. And they have dragged themselves into the light of sobriety that has given them serenity and grace and joy. And absolutely, it's there for you. Nothing can stop you. Nothing except you. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Kenny. I really appreciate your time. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com.